My name is Andy. I help people live life on purpose. This podcast explores the mystery, beauty, and complexity of life through conversations with an array of incredible practitioners, all of them working at the edge of what's possible for humanity. This is a place for big dreams, bold creativity, and fierce hope. Welcome to the Wonder Dome. If you're inspired by this conversation and you'd like to see it reach more people, you can help the Wonder Dome take flight by sharing it with friends and colleagues, subscribing, giving us a high star rating, and best of all, leaving a glowing review. If you'd like to go even further, consider becoming a monthly supporter. You'll help me keep the lights on and support a wide range of charitable causes. You can learn more at mindfulcreative.coach. Thanks in advance for helping us inspire the world. My guest today is Ben Preston. Ben is an Ulsterman from Northern Ireland who currently lives and works across Australia and New Zealand as a regenerative engineer and designer. I'm smiling a bit right now because he has such an interesting story and journey and perspective on what it means to be human and, and what it means to have a place where you come from, what it means to be indigenous to somewhere and that we are in fact all indigenous to somewhere. So I got so pulled into his story and his perspectives that it wasn't till the very end that we, we made an effort to define what it is that he actually does as a regenerative engineer and designer. So you can learn more about that in detail at his website, ben-preston.com. But maybe I'll say a word or two here before I talk a bit more about Ben in our conversation. As I understand it, regenerative design is a way of designing spaces and places and structures like buildings and homes to bring out the natural energy and expression of nature and of community and of connection. So, for instance, if you imagine a prison, that might be arguably the opposite end of regenerative design. It is designed instead to, uh, to disconnect, to separate, to isolate. And it's designed very intentionally. If you've ever been in or around a prison, they are remarkably uncomfortable, dehumanizing spaces. E- even if there was no one inside, if you were to just walk into one, there's something intimidating and imposing and, and uncomfortable about them. So regenerative designers like Ben work on the very opposite end of that spectrum to think about what is it to make a space or a place that comes to life, that invites people in, that invites people to name their biggest hopes and dreams and also their biggest fears and talk about them and connect around them and share them and in the process to take care of each other and support each other. So, of course, these are things that I care a lot about as a facilitator, but I'm often thinking about purely in the context of how two people might talk to each other or interact with each other. And Ben is thinking about that through the lens of what is it to build a space that allows for that? So I was introduced to Ben through another guest, Jeff Hall, who was on an early episode of The Wonder Dome. There'll be a link to that in the show notes where we talked about meta-leadership. And at the end of that conversation, I said, Jeff, who else should I talk to? And he said, you got to talk to Ben because Ben's working with deep ideas about what it is to be in community and in connection in ways that allow for our highest and best to come through. And he starts in a way where our conversation starts, which is to begin to locate ourselves in the world and the places where we came from and where our ancestors came from. And if you live in the States like I do, there's a good chance that you don't actually have a very good answer to that question. Or perhaps uh, if you've done Ancestry.com or something like that, you've you've sort of started, you have some sense like, yeah, I'm, I'm not just an American, although perhaps you take pride and form a lot of identity in that. I know that my ancestors came from another place. Or if you're indigenous to America... If you're a Native American, first, first peoples, first nations, then you have a very different story that relates to this continent that we stand on. So we start with that idea that all of us come from somewhere. And from there, I follow Ben on this journey to embracing 
his longing for connection in a way that allowed him to be true to himself, but also allowed him to begin to walk with and talk across boundaries that many of others, uh, others of us are intimidated by. Uh, boundaries of identity and ethnicity and culture. And, and so he lives at this, at the heart of this beautiful paradox that we can, all of us be uniquely anchored in where we come from and who we are in a way that actually allows us to connect with others who are uniquely where they come from and who they are. Rather than seeing those borders as, as divisions or sources of conflict, we can see them as the spaces where worlds meet and where new possibilities emerge. So that's the space that Ben and I play in our conversation today. It's a beautiful one, and I hope that you enjoy it. So let's get settled in. (sighs) And hear what Ben has for us. Hey, Ben. Welcome. Hey, Andy. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's a real it's a real pleasure. We were jamming a bit about our mutual colleague and friend Jeff Hall, and uh, you know, like no pressure, but I was like, Jeff, who's the one guy to talk to? He's like, you got to talk to Ben. It's like, all right, I'll reach out to Ben, and uh, and here we are, a few months later, we made it happen despite the despite the global distance between us and the time zone differences and all of the the work happening. So thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. It's such a privilege. And yeah, Jeff's a, a very dear friend and somebody that I uh, yeah love and adore and have just immeasurable respect for as a friend and, and colleague. So yeah, it's just it's a pleasure to be here at his at his his and yours and your invitation. So thank you for having me. You bet. I'm I'm feeling really called to start with something that you named. I think it was on your website, or it might have been an email signature that that put just a perfect point on something I had been feeling, but had not yet quite fully articulated. And and I don't have it right here in front of me, so I'm going to paraphrase, and you can tell me if if this is still how you're holding it, but. It was essentially a, a reminder to anyone who read this message that that we all have um, indigenous ancestry, somewhere, mm. that we all are from some place on this planet. Mm. And um, I know that you do a lot of work in your regenerative design work and in your housing work to think about uh, mm. we might use words like, um, you know, equity and inclusion, but I think there are, it's like, there's something deeper than just maybe those sort of buzzwords that you're up to. Uh, and it has something to do with that message. Like, Hey, we all have, we all have roots. We all come from someplace. Um, when we talk about indigenous peoples in a sense, not to, not to trivialize or absorb or appropriate a specific indigenous population, but rather to honor that all of us are indigenous Mm. to this planet and to somewhere on it. And I was just mm. like, hell yeah. Like when I read that, I was like, oh, that's, that's it. That's it. Really touched something in me that I think needed, needed to wake up a bit more. So I wanted to say thank you for that and just see as I mirror that back to you, kind of what, what was important to you about stating that and how are you playing with that idea of, of, being, of all of us being indigenous from somewhere. Yeah. yeah, nice. That's a really yeah beautiful reflection and invitation to, to start. Um, yeah, that, I mean, the, so the email signature that that's, pro- I've probably been using that for about three years now, um, mm. maybe a little over three years. And it was, I mean, it was very much a product of my own journey. Um, I, that's been a huge part of my path and my journey in the last five, six years or so in particular. Um, but really my whole life, and it's only been in the last maybe five, six years, I've sort of reckoned with the degree to which that has that that story and that narrative of my own indigeneity and my relationship to that as a sort of concept has shaped so much of mm. so many of my decisions and so much of the sort of patterning of my life. And I guess, so I, I was, I mean, this is the, the, probably the, the way to give some context to this is actually to go back to my, my roots, you know, yeah. ironically um, yeah. and appropriately, I guess, given the context, but I, I come from Northern Ireland, um, Ulster, the historic province of Ulster, which is one of four four provinces historically in 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 Ireland, and 
I grew up in a particular place in Northern Ireland, which is quite a young country. We've only been around for about 100 years or so. Uh, but it's a place where there's just been a lot of division and a lot of uh, very tenuous relationship with the concept of place and the concept of mm. cultural rootedness in a particular environment. Um, two very distinctive cultural identities that are quite opposed and see the world in different and often quite opposing ways. And I kind of grew up in an interesting context in that where I had my dad's side of the family are from, from one side of that cultural coin and my mum's side of the family are from another. And, oh, wow. and so I'm, you know, I, I'd have these experiences where, you know, Saturday I'd go and see my, my, some of my mum's family in a part of Belfast that's probably known as one of the more staunchly Republican parts, sort of pro-Irish parts of, of Belfast. And then on Sunday, um, I go to my dad's family, you know, 45 minutes up the road to the place that is probably one of, if not the most staunchly loyalist and pro-British parts of uh, of Northern Ireland. So grew up in this very culturally confused context, I guess, and couldn't quite make sense of my identity within that, um, especially because the town I grew up in tended towards, it was quite a pro, quite a pro-British, I guess, environment. And the, the cultural context I grew up in never felt fully authentic to me. Mm. I always felt a bit like a fish out of water. And it wasn't until I went to university in Scotland when I sort of by proxy came across a sort of energy of Celticness mm. in, in Edinburgh and the sort of poetic artistic side of that environment that something started to kind of awaken in me, I guess. And then when I went back to Ireland, it sort of just hit me that, oh, that this is my culture. The the thing that I never was able to or allowed myself to connect to. And so that kind of has started this, that started this journey in my early twenties. And I went to Australia and when I was there, I did work mostly in a sort of conventional career. I was an engineer, was working on some really cool projects in, in with quite a heavy focus on sustainability. And, but I was always drawn, like I, you know, I present as a white English speaking hetero male, like that's how people receive me, but it, the skin never felt like it fit. Mm, mm, mm. So I so relate uh, to that. Yeah. Thanks for saying it like that. Yeah. And this is, you know, with regards to that signature, there's been this interesting journey where, and your comment before about appropriation, I really noticed it myself. Like when I went to Australia, I so wanted to be accepted by Aboriginal Australia. I so mm. wanted to be accepted by cultures that had, uh, you know, from my read, a more nuanced relationship with the patterning of the world we inhabit, with the changing landscape of the sort of conversation between the natural forces around us. Um, and for a long time did so quite clumsily. You know, I kind of tried to step into that space in quite a clumsy way. And then realized, you know, a number of years ago that this was really about my own journey and my own connection to my past and my history <clears throat> and the kind of soil that birthed me. Mm. I started diving back into that and learning more and more and more about my, both my individual kind of heritage and genetic history and ancestral history and traditions, but also the context I grew up in, you know, um, we hold these incredibly simplified narratives about who we are as collective um, groups. And, you know, in Ireland, there's this idea of the Celtic Irish, um, and all of the sim symbolism that comes with that. But that's a pretty recent phenomena. And actually, Ireland's always mm -hmm. been a, a country of mongrels. We've always had visitors and people settling and interbreeding. And it's it's always been a beautifully diverse place, but that's not part of our narrative. Um, so yeah, I guess that that signature was in many ways a reflection of and a, and a product of my own reckoning with that journey. And to some degree, a reclamation of this is who I am. And that's a journey that continues today. But these days, I'm much, much, much more comfortable being uh, a, and actually in some ways taking advantage of the fact that people perceive me as a white, hetero, English-speaking male, because um, it gives me the opportunity actually to represent certain things and spaces um, and collaborations and so on that many people who are not perceived that way couldn't, you know, people of color or people who suffer from, from, the ill effects of of um, of patriarchy or um, other systems of oppression, they're not able to speak truth to power in certain spaces. So mm. there is a potency in the fact that I'm perceived that way that gives me an ability to speak 
truth in spaces and inhabit truth in spaces where others maybe don't have the ability to? Uh, thanks for naming that. Um, there is someone doing yard work, like maybe 10 feet from us right now. So um, apologies for any background noise or folks listening and like, what's that sound? Is Andy, Andy growling at Ben right now? No, I'm not growling. There's just a leaf. Blowing <laughs> um, you use the word reclamation and you talked about this recognition that this was your journey and work to do. And yeah. uh, I wonder if just, and you sort of alluded to like some of the, the genetic sort of learning about your genetic history and learning about these kind of confluences of different peoples who came to make Ireland, what has become kind of the Celtic myth or Celtic identity. And I want to spend mm. a little more time here. It feels really potent and powerful to mm. like, I, maybe you could just take us a bit into the contours of that. When you realized it was your journey, how mm. did you start because there is not necessarily, at least um, there's not a, a widely shared curriculum or path for those of us who might want to reclaim some sense of where we came from. Yeah, how did you start yeah. on that? What are some of the places you touched into? Yeah, I mean, it started off with a lot of, I guess, a lifetime of discomfort and a sort of lifetime of realize or feeling as though I didn't quite understand. You know, there's belonging something I think we all struggle with and I'm, I'm it's something I've struggled with my whole life as well and there's this this sense that you know I, I don't belong but for mm. me it was it was more it was more the sense of not actually being able to make sense of myself within my context and this is very much linked to to regeneration the process the living process of regeneration I couldn't make sense of my nature within the environment I inhabit and that discomfort kind of slowly ramped up to reach a bit of a tipping point. And when I was living in, uh, in, in Melbourne in 2016, 17, something like that, I started this course called the center for sustainability leadership that was quite influential during its time. And it's no longer running, but had a huge impact on the landscape of a whole variety of, you know, sustainability, social justice, et cetera, in Australia. Um, and that exposed me, I guess it was a nine month community focused program and that exposed me to aspects of myself and questions that I didn't know lived within me. And I actually ended up taking some time off, um, work towards the end of that course and going back to Ireland. And I spent about maybe two months back in Ireland. And while I was there, started to, I guess, uh, started to reconnect with the land and some of the cultural environments and that, that pro process and pattern kind of has continued over the last few years with like just research and cur following threads of curiosity. You know, the, the, the history that we understand about Ireland or anywhere else is shaped by a particular group of people who had the privilege and fortune of being able to record and document that history. Mm -hmm. But there are always many, many, many people who did not have that privilege so that, you know, the history, like anything, you know, humans are meaning making machines. It's what we, it's what we do, but the symbolism we attribute to anything, be it history or anything else is never representative of the, the whole truth. It can't by nature encompass the entirety of what it describes. And um, that's so true here. And I guess, as I started to dig back, started to find all of these really interesting threads, like I did my own sort of ancestral DNA and discovered that um, I have significant proportions of Scandinavian, but also North mm. African, mm. Um, African heritage. And, and then as I started digging, I went back into, you know, Ireland's a very heavily Christianized nation. And I went back to the, to, to the, a lot of the original texts. We're very fortunate in Ireland that we have, albeit Christianized versions, but we have some very ancient te texts that survive and that document some of our old oral traditions and, and creation myths and so on. And what are our, our sort of main creation book uh, myth was documented in a book called the book of invasions which in english which which tells the story of multiple waves of migration by various peoples to ireland and they've now you know there's been archaeological evidence and genetic evidence that hint at where those different waves arrived from and um one, the more recent one, the Malaysians arrived, it's thought from Iberia, so from, from Spain, effectively, and originally were North African peoples. Um, 
and there's all sorts of random random bits of evidence like there's pre there's pre-islamic imagery and iconography has been found in archaeological sites in central ireland um there's a particular design of 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 seal um on the west coast of ireland in one of the Gaeltacht areas that is only found in one other place in the world and that's on the arabian peninsula um there's, there's a sean new singing and dancing which is a form of very old form of song and dance in ireland is almost identical to forms of song still found around north africa and the arabian peninsula today so you know it just it painted a picture of like well okay this is way more nuanced than i thought and even to the point you know when we look at i know yoga is a big part of your life it's a huge part of of mine as well and and very you know interestingly um Gwilga, the sort of language of of Ireland, um, is shares a lot of words and a lot of etymology with Sanskrit, and there's right? a lot, of, yeah, and there's a lot of words that share a common a common origin. And I I don't, from my read of it, I don't think it's fully understood why that's the case. But um, you know, I've read various bits of speculation that one of those waves of migration was from a people that were fleeing the fall of the Indus, Indus Valley civilization, which was the sort of pre-Vedic uh, civilization that yogic practice originated from. Um, but, you know, who knows what the truth of it is, but there's there's some clear etymological links between certain words in Gwilga and in, and in Sanskrit. So the, the, the reality is just the story is complex and it's more nuanced than, than we appreciated. And just digging into that gave me a more nuanced appreciation for the 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 richness i guess of the soil that i come from and the simplicity of the narratives we hold it's easier to not believe in my in my experience it's easier to not get sucked into either the negative or positive aspects of the narratives we hold today or we've subsumed from society when we can see them <clears throat> for the kind of overly simplistic nature mm. um, that, that that is their essence mm. beautiful and i'm really alive to how like how fun and meaningful and surprising and enriching I'm feeling right now, just hearing you name these different like tributaries mm. of human movement and the and the song and dance and story that carried with them and the way they've commingled to produce something that you know, shows up in you right now and many, many other people around the world. So just really like really alive to that and also feeling a little bit of sadness around how much our simple narratives to the extent that they're useful and have utility just pave over all of that or push it down or forget it. And that forgetting is, has a kind of a, there's something sad to me about that. So just like the way that you're reclaiming some of that, the act of reclamation that you said, I feel that happening for me, even as you just, just narrate your own journey. So thanks for sharing that. No, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that, you know, that sense of liveliness, that sense of immediate kind of buoyancy and kind of that's, that's what it's all about for me. You know, that's what attracts me to the concept of, you know, regeneration um, is is just a is just a word, and it's a fairly quickly becoming, unfortunately, a fairly meaningless one. Um, but it <laughs> but it but it attempts to describe an experience that cannot be conveyed in words, and that experience of that buoyancy hints at it somewhat. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, maybe we can um, start from that word and and start to reveal some of the layers of meaning that are there. Mm -hmm. And I'll just name a particular point of curiosity as we go into your work a bit more, more definitively, you know, so far my primary exposure to um, thing, the word regeneration shows up in relation to the word agriculture. So I just know lots of people here in the States who are really keen on regenerative agriculture. And I'm, I'm now pretty keen on it because I'm like, wow, this is a remarkable way of relating to the land that mm. ha has the potential to bear literal and metaphorical fruits for, I mean, on time scales that modern industrial agriculture simply don't even know how to think about. Um, yeah. So like, cool, but you're not a regenerative agriculturalist, at least, at least not by, by vocation, you're a regenerative designer. So maybe we could sort of play with the word regeneration and, and and how some of the stuff we've already talked about feeds into that and then move into what it actually means to design with that in mind. Does that sound like a good, good space for us to go to? That sounds awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. 
So for, for folks who are listening in going like, okay, Ben, you've said the word regeneration a couple of times. You've even said that it doesn't really mean anything anymore because maybe it's a little buzzy, but like, what, what about that word for you started to also give you that sense of buoyancy and kind of get you activated around it? Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, it was, uh, the word, the word was kind of one aspect of it, but I guess when I was earlier in my career, I was working in sustainable design and I, uh, was living in Sydney and I came across the Living Futures Institute when they were in their kind of early days in Australia, the Australian Living Futures Institute of Australia, which kind of emerged out of the International Living Futures Institute in Seattle. And uh, I actually, that was, that was part of the reason I moved to Australia. I'd been in touch with a guy who was the facilitator for the Living Future Collaborative in Perth. <clears throat> and um, something about the concept, they, they, you know, they sort of pioneered the idea of living buildings, buildings that are in reciprocal relationship with their environment in this sort of dynamic exchange with their environment in a way that ideally leads to greater conditions for health over time for both, <clears throat> both kind of inhabitants of the building, but also the, of the, the broader environment. So that, that sort of, for me was just like, Whoa, okay, this is, this is uh, I'm paying attention. You've got my attention. Mm. And so I started really diving into this and started really sort of, yeah, learning more and more about it and something just, just really resonated. And then in that context, I came across the language of regeneration originally through the work of Regenesis group who are um, one of the real pioneers, I guess, of regenerative practice and regenerative development, regenerative design. Um, based in in the US and um, through their work I, I went to Santa Fe and and sort of practiced and studied with them in 2016 and that was it was the experience I had there that really just opened it opened it all up and started to really I for some it, it tapped me into something that I had been sensing and feeling my entire life and it was an experience and the word regeneration was a useful shorthand for the the depth and quality of that experience and to describe it in a way that had the potential for it to influence day-to-day -day practice, day-to-day -day business, day-to-day, -day, you know, the way that we actually inhabit our lives as people with careers and families and so on. Um, so it just, it just started, it just captured me. It just mm. something, there was, mm. there was a, there was something that just felt uh, true in it in a way that I, I guess to date, you know, I'd had this experience growing up of, you know, con experiencing concepts or ideas or these threads that I pull on and, you know, I'd go to university and think, oh, the lecturers, they, they, they've got it together. They understand. And then I, and then I, I'd see them for the humans they are and be like, Oh no, that's, that's not it. And then I'd start my first job after uni and I'd be like, Oh my, the, the senior, the senior I report to, he's surely he's got it together. Nope. You know, and it just, it felt like these series of like, you know, kind of at that time disappointments. Now I can just, I can, I can relish in the human condition for the beauty that it is. But then I came across this and was like, Oh, it, it just, that it, it described the pattern of existence. And as I experienced it, um, and, you know, in my childhood, I, I was fortunate to grow up and my, my sister, Sarah was born with quite severe, what, what we would consider disabilities. And so I grew up effectively as a twin to her and I witnessed her just break through glass ceiling after glass ceiling, you know, mm. the she wouldn't live past two weeks and then she wouldn't live past two months and then she wouldn't live past six months and then she'd never walk. And then she'd never be able to reclaim any use of her voice. And then all of these things and just, nope. Wow. just kept smashing through them time and again. So yeah, I guess growing up alongside her and just witnessing that process, her own process of evolution and growth within her context, and then how her process of evolution and growth influenced changes in the environment, the family environment, me, mm. my parents, mm. the people we interact with. It was just watching this kind of restorative ecology just do its thing. <clears throat> and so, yeah, it, it, it was just, it, it just, it just captured me. And I spent years after I practiced with Regenesis clumsily trying to figure out how to apply this thing in, in a quite a traditional context, um, involving, you know, engineers and developers and financiers and sustainability professionals and all sorts of people. And, uh, yeah, I was fortunate to have a lot of support in that and make a lot of mistakes and learn a lot from it. And, and I, you know, have been very fortunate to now arrive at, I guess, my own, way of carrying that 
the 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 deeper meaning of that symbol, the symbol of regeneration, the deeper meaning of it to carry it in my cellular memory and my body and my in the way that I carry myself and you know I don't I still I use the language but the language is less significant to me these days than than the experience mm. as I hear you tell this story your your sort of arrival your sense of finding something that you sensed was true but didn't yet have the language for and then kind of mapping your own sister's journey on that and seeing the sort of restoration and the way it impacted your whole family and the world around you. A word that's kind of coming through for me right now is the word healing. Like there's something about not only growth, but healing that seems to be present in your story. And I wonder if you could, could just play with that a bit, if that resonates with you. Yeah, hugely, hugely. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the, I think, I feel like in my experience, healing is a precursor for regeneration. And I I wouldn't, I don't know. I don't know that I'd necessarily synonymize the two. Like, I think there's a lot of usage of the terminologies like restorative and regenerative often get used synonymously these days. And to me, they're quite different things. They're very, very different things interrelated, but different. And in in a similar way, it feels to me like healing has been a huge part of my journey and it's been a huge part. I feel like it's a huge part of any space where there is the possibility of regeneration. Um, And that kind of circling back to the start of our conversation, it's really that requires that reckoning. It requires that staring right in the heart of the soil that birthed us and the place we came from and the the minerals, nutrients and scars and all of the things we carry as a result of being born from that particular circumstance at that particular time by that particular person with that particular wound and that particular gift and, um, and by, by, by reorienting to that, I've, I've become, I guess, or I'm starting to, it's a practice every day. Like this is not, I don't have any, uh, key to this by any stretch of the imagination. Like I am winging every single <laughs> It's, it is very much a day by day, moment by moment practice. Sounds but fun. <laughs> it is, it is. And utterly terrifying at times, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but generally, generally fun. even in the terrifying moments, there's a quality of sort of, hopefully a quality of levity to it. But, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's that reorienting to that and allowing myself to then feel the truth of, of, of what it is. Cause you know, prior to, for me, healing has emerged out of acknowledgement of the truth prior to my, I guess the full extent of my current. And I really feel like I'm in the thick right now of a very deep healing process in my life. And mm. that's only been possible because I've actually been supported enough and had courage enough to turn around and look at the heart of the matter and look at where, where I've come from without doing the thing that we do of either averting my eyes or attaching to only those things that feel preferable or desirable to the, to the negation of other things, but just to look at it clearly and and see it for what it is and to accept the parts of myself that I've adopted as a result of being from that context without labeling it wrong, without labeling Mm -hmm. it as, as something that shouldn't have been, you know, if only I was this, if only my parents had been this, if only my environment had been this, then I would be why it just doesn't work that way. And my, by looking back at it and accepting what is, I've been able to kind of really move towards healing in my own life in a way that equips me to then show up within the present environment I find myself. Cause prior to that, you know, I'm living in the future or I'm living in the past. <laughs> I'm living in the future because I want to change. You know, I, I, when I have X amount of money, X job, X partner, X, whatever, then I'll be good enough. And then I'll be able to contribute in a way that's useful and meaningful or if only my parents had done Y, my environment had done Z, then I would be able to contribute in a useful way. But by just acknowledging that this is what it is and it is not wrong, it's part of the fabric of reality and it doesn't make mistakes regardless of my ideas or thoughts about it. It doesn't make mistakes. I may not understand it, but it happened for a reason and I'm here and I'm who I am for a reason. And by accepting that and accepting the healing that can emerge from that, I'm then equipped to show up in this moment, in this conversation with you as the person I am with all of the baggage I carry, 
all of the gifts I carry, all of the scars I carry, and to just accept the way that they move through me and shape me um, without, and there's a, there's an easefulness to that. But that for me is where healing becomes a platform for a generation because through that healing of acceptance, I'm then able to show up in a way that can allow me to find my place within the pattern that I inhabit yeah, right now yeah. and bring bring the full weight of who I am to bear in co-creating that environment and contributing to that environment. If I don't start with healing, then I'm always going to be isolating or disregarding bits of myself and therefore not contributing as wholly as I can to the environment. And if I stop at healing and I take healing to mean regeneration and don't go beyond that, then I never actually move into being able to gift the entirety of myself to my current environment because I'm too busy focused on still fixing or trying to change the aspects of myself that are a product of where I've come from. So healing feels important to it, but it doesn't feel like either the end of the road or the start of it. Wow. Thanks, Ben. That was really, I'm like, you know, maybe you've been seeing me, listeners can't see, but I'm sort of like smiling. My eyes are going wide. Like there's a lot uh, moving in me as you share healing as kind of the groundwork for what we might generate and regenerate. And, and this now to me, having sort of laid that in a way you've sort of invited people listening to say, if, if there's a part of your life that you're avoiding, as scary as it might seem, slowing down and looking at it and seeing what it has to teach you might be the healing gift that you're longing for, despite, despite the fear that's there or the avoidance that's there. So thanks for that invitation. Yeah. And it feels, I mean, that's a beautiful reflection and right now, you know, in particular, the time we find ourselves in collectively, what comes to mind hearing you share that is what do we have to learn collectively right now by looking at the things that we don't want to, you know, we have, I don't know what it's like, Yes, right now, but over here, I, the tension between differing opinions on vaccination or or anti-vaccination or 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 you know just different approaches to mandates as a result of COVID, it is. I know a lot of people who are really struggling with it, and I've had my moments of struggling with it as well. And it's you know the question for me and the the invitation of this time, the potency of this time, I think, is how do we lean in. Yeah. How do we how do we lean in and accept that this is where we are, rather than desperately trying to wriggle our way out of some percep- perception of like constraint? It's like we all believe that we're in like a straitjacket and we have to resist this thing violently to try and liberate and free ourselves. But it's a like it feels like a trap to me. We're yeah. already living in liber in a liberated state. We're already living in exactly the time, place, and circumstance that we should be. The challenge is not to resist that and to try and change and manipulate it so that we feel more comfortable with the people who believe, see, and think similarly to us, but to accept that, holy, like this is crazy. Like what's going on is this is crazy. And I don't understand it, but it's what's going on. So how do we just bask in it and just accept it and not use it as a tool or a weapon to start to create more division between us and others and us in reality. And it's, you know, I think there is a lot for us to learn in being able to accept it as it is and sit and dwell in that space together, even with those people whose views we can't fully, maybe not even slightly understand. (laughs) Well, just as an aside, uh, at least the the news. I've actually spent some time in New Zealand, by the way, many years ago. And then the uh, little oh. the little news that I have had from afar is like, you know, it's from from the U.S. perspective. It's like, oh, New Zealand's got it together. So, so th- thank you for naming the complexities on the ground and um, this sort of invitation to what does it actually look like for us not to weaponize our fear and weaponize our point of view but rather to, to, to bring these divergence, divergences together in some way. And, it, and now, now I feel like we're just sort of standing at the edge of maybe what you see as your work or as your calling or as a part of it, this regenerative design. And I wonder if maybe just before we touch that directly, you could just say, if, if I had to sort of say, okay, Ben, you've got, you've got like a sentence or two or three to sort of give someone a really clear definition of what regeneration is. We sort of said, it's not quite healing. It's not quite restoration. Like 
maybe you could just help help name that really clearly so that then as we step into regenerative design and and the spaces you're creating we can really understand what that is yeah sure i mean i think for me it it is put simply the living process of evolution so it's the way that different aspects of what we would call life interact in such a way that gives rise to greater levels of diversity, vitality, viability, health, and starts to foster nurturing conditions mm. Mm. Um, at, a, at a simple level. And emerged, the term regeneration emerged, or, or my, my sort of own relationship to it, I'm not going to sort of claim this as truth, was based largely out of the work of um, Francisco Vare and Humberto Maturana, who were two biologists who coined the term and a, and a theory underpinning or underpinned by it called autopoiesis, which is really about the ways that cells originally ex- make sense of and understand their environment and then, and then um, self-replicate based on slight subtle changes in ways that bring them into sort of greater alignment with the needs of that environment or the sort of um, can the pattern conditions that can give rise to greater diversity and greater health in that environment. So that's it in a kind of general sense. And then, you know, you mentioned regenerative agriculture before and it's, it's regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture is not an area of specialty for, for me. Um, I know bits and pieces about it and I, and I, I adore it. And at times, you know, I've, I've been witness to regenerative agriculture, um, regenerative farms where, you know, the people are working 75 hour weeks and can't, mm. can't, can't, can't find, um, can't find a moment of nourishment with their partner. I'm like if, if, if the people in a bioregional context are not finding their way towards health, you can't call that environment a regenerative environment. Um, mm. Because it really is about it's about that interplay between um, between living things, and I think we have a tendency to separate humanity and humans, and, and our our um, narrative of who we are from the rest of the flow and field of life. <clears throat> but we're not, you know, we're we're not different from the rest of that, and actually, our tendency to differentiate through meaning making and symbolism different aspects of which is very obviously rooted in the way that science has evolved through the way that you know we use um the way that we sort of classify different aspects of the biological world and fragment it and there's a usefulness to that but Mm. believing it is the whole truth believing that that map we create is representative of the landscape it describes would be a mistake so that's really i guess the basis of regeneration for me and then my my work more so focuses on the ways that various tools, practices, and behaviors that we use as individuals, as businesses, as societies, either acts as a catalyst for or an inhibitor for our participation in the process of regeneration. Because <clears throat> regeneration, it's not a process we create. We don't, we don't go in and regenerate something. It doesn't work mm-hmm. that way. Regeneration mm-hmm. is something that is just happening. It's like, it's like gravity. It just occurs. We don't create gravity. We don't, you know, you can, you can, you can stop resisting the feet of the fall of gravity in your bones by releasing tension in your muscles and feel the weight of gravity as it pushes my, me into this chair right now. You know, I can, sure. I can, I can stop resisting the flow of gravity. Sure. Um, but I can't create gravity. I can add weight to something that might accentuate the force of gravity or the way that it's mm. felt by an object. Mm but I can't change the force of gravity and regeneration is largely the same. There's a force that exists and it does exist. It's a very real, very tangible thing um, that scientists have not really fully been able. And there's a lot of history and, you know, looking at the, the, the genesis of enlightenment philosophy and the scientific method and where that comes from that actually describes very clearly why in modern terms, most people kind of consider this, you know, a sort of abstract or or woo or intangible concept. It's not at all. It's just that even the early Enlightenment philosophers, there's, you know, Descartes did not have a way to reconcile what 
he saw in living organisms that seemed to have the ability to self-replicate. They seemed to have the ability to contain within them the pattern for their own becoming. Mm. Mm. They didn't need any outside influence for that. And, and he couldn't make sense of that and didn't need to because the reductionist methods that were kind of emerging were so productive. They, they produced technologies that were really useful and had a lot of utility. So when, when you're experiencing a lot of utility from an idea, you don't need to question the things that don't work until you get 250 years down the line and you find that, oh, oh that idea that we didn't reconcile is now starting to cause problems. Uh, wow. Thank you for that. There's so much I want to say here. So let me just see. I'm aware uh, there's a, uh, just maybe as an example, maybe I'll say one thing. I'm, I'm understanding regeneration in a sort of very elegant and simple way, which is to say it's what life does. And I'm aware that we as humans have a unique place on the planet as uh, some sort of agent in what life does, where we can kind of poke and prod and slice and dice and connect and disconnect, we can sort of step into that flow and, and either, if I'm hearing you right, inhibit it, interrupt it, break it, slow it down at least, uh, to confuse it. Mm. Or we can sort of almost like a person sort of blowing on a flame, just kind of like the flame is going to burn or it's not, but maybe if we show up, we can help it burn a little brighter, a little faster or something like that. Is that that, does that sort of have the right feeling tone to what you're what you're touching into? Yeah, yeah it totally does. I mean, it's really like, <clears throat> as you say, there's all sorts of examples of, um, and unfortunately, the majority of examples we have today of human intervention in the process of life results in degradation. Most of our practices these days are around when there's going to be a human intervention in something, whether it's a <clears throat> whether it's a building development, whether it's a interaction with a, with an ecosystem of some sort, the, the, the narrative is generally, all right, we are going to cause harm here. How do we minimize and mitigate that harm? That's the assumption. The assumption mm. is we're going to cause damage. That's largely, that's not a, that's not a given. That's a product of the tools, the off the shelf tools and practices that we have inherited and that we continue to blindly use without question, because there are other examples where that's not been the case. And the, the most I mean, indigenous societies across the world have, 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 you know, give us those examples. And in particular, I find actually first nations peoples of the Americas have some of the most potent examples, whether it's, um, whether it's the, 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 um, people of the Anaconda, the, the people of the Amazon basin and, and some of the stories there around the, the very early European settlers and what they discovered there pre-Columbus. Um, but then of course, when Columbus came and settlers came, the narrative that was recorded in history was very different because, you know, as we talked about before with history, uh, the the history books are written by those with, in a position of privilege and, and typically with something to gain consciously or otherwise. So, yeah, and I, and I think the other thing I'd add to what you shared is that it's really about participation. Mm. Mm. You know, if, if we come in with a sense of control or a belief that we have in that environment with that small flame starting to kindle and we have aspirations for what that flame should become, we're probably going to burn the forest down. But if we come in with a view to finding our place within the web of existence that that flame is also a participant in, and we learn to participate in that environment in a, in a, in a relatively ego free way, you know, the ego has the, it's a useful phenomena. It's a useful tool. It evolved for a reason, but we live in a society that creates certain trends or patterns in the ego where it starts to kind of dominate, or I would say not, not understand its tool, its, its utility quite so well, or it's, you know, it's like trying to, it's like trying to, I don't know, like, um, I've got like a lovely oak wardrobe here. And if, you know, the hinge on it was, was there was a problem with the hinge and, you know, I need like a little subtle tool to get to it, but I didn't have a little subtle tool to hand. So oh, I've got this chainsaw here. I'll just use this chainsaw and see how that goes. You know, I'm not going to have a very lovely <laughs> oak wardrobe at the end. So or, the leaf, like, or the leaf blower outside my window that's back again. 
yeah, yeah. right? Exactly. Like to take that to yeah. the bookshelf. Oh, not quite the right tool, right? Exactly. But like the leaf blower is not bad. The chainsaw is not bad. They're useful things, but maybe not appropriate for this, you know, this environment. Yeah. And we, I feel like we've forgotten the full suite of tools we have and we just kind of rely on on one or two. And there's good reasons for that. You know, there's the, the, the patterns of industrialization have evolved such that that's uh, just how, how, how things have landed. But we have the opportunity now to choose differently. And that's the important thing. Yeah. Two quick things that I'll try and include in the show notes. One, there's a just kind of powerhouse of a book called The, the Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist that speaks to some of the underlying brain science of the part of us that you call the ego that likes to divide and just sort of, all right, I don't have, I don't have the subtle, subtle tool. I'll bring the chainsaw like that part of us. That's going to go after the problem at all costs, no matter what. And then the part of us that can, can actually be spacious and open and have a, a maybe deeper or wider lens. So that's, if you haven't, if you haven't checked that out, highly recommend it. And, and I haven't, I certainly will. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm also aware that there's a park in New Zealand, a, like a, um, a forest, uh, mm. that I wish I had more. I'll find it and put in the show notes where essentially the, the caretaker of that forest who is a white bodied man, but essentially just said like, yeah, Basically, we're not going to do anything for my, I, my plan is to not do anything for about 10 years. I'm just going to yeah. walk the land and, you know, but I'm not going to touch it if there, as long as it's a native plant, I'm just going to let it do its thing. And now yeah. 30, 40, 50 years later, that forest in New Zealand is like completely a native. It's totally regenerated. So, so there's something about his participation in that forest that I think I just want to underline as like uh, an example of exactly what you're describing. Totally. And I think, so that, that example is interesting because I, I think I know the place you're talking about. And it, 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 it's a really good example of how the human mind steps in in such a way to label that we might think is useful, but actually can cause harm. So the, that particular example, the tendency amongst conservationists is to, to, um, to just preach at the church of native, native planting. Right. But the interesting thing is in New Zealand, gorse is just rampant. And gorse is a, if it's treated as a weed, you know, it's from Scotland and Ireland. Yes, and yes, yes. Uh, yep, it's right. treated as a weed. And in that particular example, one of the things he didn't do, which many other places have kind of uh, advocated for, is ripping the gorse up. The gorse isn't native. We need to get rid of all the gorse. We need to get rid of it. The problem with that is that the gorse also has it. We, it, we, who are we to say it's non-native? It exists in that context, in that environment. Mm -hmm. And the reality mm -hmm. is it's fulfilling a role. So what it's actually doing in that context is it's a nitrogen fixer. It's fixing nitrogen into the soil. And what happens when, when we leave gorse in, in, in many environments in New Zealand is it fixes nitrogen and creates the conditions for early succession natives like Manuka and Kanuka to start to grow. And eventually they grow through the gorse. They shade out the gorse and the gorse dies away. And it, creates fertile conditions for then more mid-succession native plants to come through. If we rip the gore site, we actually stop the process of succession because our mind said it wasn't good enough. Mm, mm, mm. That's it. I remember that now. And I remember him saying like, actually, I see why people think this is a pain in the ass, but, but it's quite beautiful if you let it grow. And look at this, look what's happening in the understory of the gorse as it, as it fixes that nitrogen and creates shade for these other kind of other trees to grow is, so yeah, that there's something he was participating in that went past the kind of story, even the story of people who are really committed to its success. And this is the thing, it really challenges our view of what is participation, because so often we have an idea of participation, which, me, you know, my participation in this ecosystem looks like me helping to restore it to what it was in the past. But hold up, what it was in the past is just an idea. All that is is an idea I hold in my mind. The reality is that I have no idea what this place was in the past. I have some inclinations of it, and there's some information by my understanding the history of this place that can be used to inform how I participate in it today. But if I believe that my role is to participate in it, to try and return it to some abstract idea and have I have in my mind, what I'm actually doing is manipulating. Mm. I am manipulating the patterning of the context I find myself in to make myself more comfortable. If I actually want to participate in this system, it's about accepting who it is today. 
It's accepting who it is, accepting what I know of its path without believing that the idea I have about the path it's walked is the actual path it's walked. If I, you and I have just met Andy, and I mentioned at the start of this, before we started the recording, that I'm interested in who you are. And you could tell me things about you and I'll get some inklings of what that, how that shaped you and how that led you to the person I see in front of me on a little teeny screen today. But if I make an assumption that I know your past mm, mm. and that I know how that experience shaped you. And, oh, that sounds like a really significant experience in your life. I better help you get back to the sense of self-worth you had during that experience when you were 17. How functional is our relationship going to be? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, that's a powerful rhetorical question. I think anyone listening can touch into the answer. Yes, that, thank you. I feel really... Um, awake to the subtleties of actual participation as opposed to sort of abstract manipulation. And boy, oh boy, have we been raised in contexts that reward abstract manipulation. Um, yeah. yeah. Geez. So I'm aware of time and I, and sadly today I have a bit of a boundary coming up, but I wonder if maybe we could take about five to seven more minutes um, with just one more point that I just, I, and if we have more to talk about, by the way, I'd love to have you back on. This has been really fun. So this doesn't have to be a completion, but rather just a door opening, but I'd love to just Go touch on. on one more kind of piece of your work. And I'd love to invite you to read something, a benediction, either something that you've wrote or something that you've brought to sort of bring us to a formal close today. So does that sound good? We have about another seven minutes or so. That sounds great. Okay. So you wrote in one of your recent pieces on your website at benpreston.com, you wrote this um, lovely piece a couple of weeks ago called Finding Our Way Home, aka Moving Beyond Control. And um, right at the top, you ask two questions back to back that I sense live at the heart of what you do, which is this idea of how physical spaces reinforce the ways we choose to be with each other or retreat from each other. And you ask, they ask these two questions. Do we intend to create spaces that enable us to be with views we cannot understand? Do we intend to create spaces that enable us to be with views we cannot understand? Or do we intend to create islands that reinforce the beliefs that make us most comfortable? And my sense is that you are intending to create spaces that enable us to be with views we cannot understand. And my hope, and as sort of the last piece that we might touch on today is if you could just say a few words about what's important to you about that intention and maybe more specifically what it means to design for that intention, like to be someone who thinks about spaces that enable that, those su supposedly conflicting views to actually be together. Yeah, yeah, that's... Mm. I think, I mean, the, 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 what kind of draws me to that very much is that it is in some ways a selfish desire. It's what I experience whenever I'm able to be in a space of harmonizing this. And it's, and it's, it's peace, it's serenity, it's acceptance. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a state of relative bliss. You know, it's, it's finally giving up the resistance to what is and the resistance to the, the perceived imperfection of how things are. And you know, that's what, that's what draws me to it on a personal level, I guess, is a desire to experience more of it. It's where, yeah. it's where, where sort of primary satisfaction comes from in life for me. And, and I want to, I want to pause right there because boy, I think you just said something so important. The Island that reinforces my beliefs and makes me comfortable. Boy, that sounds seductive. Like, yeah, I want to go to that Island where my people are there and I belong and I, and I know everyone and I'm comfortable but, but if we look around and really attend, all of us are desperately trying to, all of us, I use that very openly and loosely, but, but there are ways in which I can notice parts of myself that really want to get to that, that gosh darn island. And it produces so much anxiety and suffering and fear. And what you're just describing is this paradox, like, oh, actually go in spaces where I'm with difference. Oh, I can just finally like stop. I can stop. I can be at ease. And that feels really important, that paradox you've just named. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting about that is it's almost like I feel like we don't need to seek out places where 
there's difference. D- diversity exists. It's a function of existence. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. what, we, what we need to do is stop running away from spaces where there's diversity towards spaces where we feel more comfortable by the sort of more homogenous nature of those around us, akin to what makes us comfortable or who we are. And it, 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 yeah, I, I just, I think there is a real risk to speak to the kind of design elements and the sort of, you know, a lot of my work is in spatial design. So a lot of my work is in the design of communities and buildings and, and large, large scale developments, urban design type contexts. And, you know, within that environment, space, the space around us is one thing that shapes our perceptions, our ideas about ourselves and the world, the way we move through the world and inhabit the world. So it constantly shapes us. It constantly uh, adjusts the choices we we make or don't make mm. as, as a mm. space is just one thing that does that you know culture does that whether it's the culture of our of our work context the um societal culture we live in all sorts of things tools practices that we have as a society shape the choices we make and whether we choose to create islands of safety and comfort or whether we choose to engage in the reality of the diversity of the experience we inhabit and th- I think that that's increasingly, you know, I work I, I, over the last four years in particular, I've worked in quite a diverse range of spaces from sort of business and fintech to spatial design, which is kind of more my bread and butter, just a whole range of different areas. And in each of them, it kind of doesn't, these days, it doesn't feel as significant or important to me where I'm practicing. The practice is the same. It's noticing where the where the barriers are to mm, mm. of and you know it's that it's back to that sort of sensation of regeneration as gravity how do we learn to surrender more to let the process occur and and that kind of happens and we we need to do that and identify which tools we're using are stopping us from doing that regardless of the context the other thing i would say is that there is a real danger and i've noticed this of myself over the last few years that i was actually i was listening to your podcast the other day with one of my just the heroes parker palmer oh I yeah mean, i was a part of me was fanboying the whole time i had that conversation oh, just as it <laughs> my point is being on the same podcast doesn't it's just like <laughs> but he mentioned in that about community and how he realized when he went to spend 11 years in a quaker community that he had been he'd been practicing something that he hadn't lived and there is a risk of us wanting to um, you know we see this in yoga we see this in everything where people want to be they want to become uh a certain caliber of teacher or they want to be the person who delivers a certain thing and there's value and merit in that and the willingness to want to do that's important you know that we want to foster that and allow that fuel to move through us and guide us but there is something really key as well about doing the work doing the practice being in the space of and that for me right now is really core i can't tell someone else how to be in a process of regeneration all i can do is find ways to be in it myself and hope that through whatever emerges as a result of me submersing myself in that river is enough to bring me to some point of satisfaction and maybe maybe to affect someone else in a way that has some positive outcome for them mm. and for the world. But I can't, mm. I can't mandate or dictate or impose my ideas or my, there's a danger in that. My practice needs to be immersing myself in the river of regeneration and the process of life to the greatest degree possible with utter compassion for the times I get it wrong, because I will get it wrong. And I do every day. Yeah. Um, and hope that, through that and through others' example of doing the same, we might inspire each other towards whatever vision of the future we hope and sense might be possible. Beautiful. So maybe in a moment, Ben, you could read something, a poem or a benediction or a blessing that perhaps invites all of us to immerse more fully into that river. And uh, and just before you do, if, if folks want to learn more about your work, your writing, your, your work in spatial design, where, what's the best place for them to, to check that out? I, my website, so ben-preston, P-R-E-S-T-O-N.com. Um, my email's on there. My mobile's on there. Um, yeah, reach out, reach out by email or LinkedIn is generally a good place to get me. But yeah, it's, it, it, you know, if anyone is listening to this and is, is curious or eager, I'm, 
would would it would be a great gift to me actually to have the opportunity to explore some of these ideas and uh, discussions further with people that are interested. Um, I think right now in particular, if if we sense that curiosity of that thread and we want to pull it, pull it. Yeah, uh, we we need to we need to follow those curiosities and let them weave us closer together right now. Brilliant. Well, I hope I hope that you and I get a chance to weave together again at some point. I feel like we've started what could be a really rich, even deeper conversation, and we've also touched into some wonderful depth. So thank you for that. And and I'll pass it over to you to close us out with something to read if you feel up for it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Andy. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, so this is a poem that I wrote um, yeah, a few, few months ago now and shared with a community of practice I'm involved in. Turn away from the computer. Get your feet into the soft earth. Waltz down the street with your chest out, head high, drawing the next inhale to nestle itself deep within grateful lungs. Know your true inheritance, the space that no one had to ask you to inhabit, that could never hold any other shape than the one you yourself couldn't help but make, that mould that you rarely allowed yourself to fill that continually invites the molten essence of your singular dance. Listen for the sounds as they wash over. Feel the softness of fabric on your skin. Allow your body to relax into the pleasure of it all. Hearing the echo of those pains that resist, that ask that you become less than all you can be. To shy away through a promise of safety in reality, a thinly veiled yet well-intentioned lie that has never witnessed the true magic that you are. Become that magic. Weave that spell that only you can with the wind at your back, the dirt between your toes and water rushing over shivering skin. Exhale, let go, become, then become again. <laughs> mm. thank you Ben this is beautiful thank thanks you, everyone for listening in wishing you all go well go bravely here's to stepping into the river more and uh, Ben this was a real treat here's hoping there's more to come absolutely thanks Andy alright thanks for tuning in to the Wonder Dome this podcast was produced by me Andy Cahill with support from Kelly Sirqua and audio editing services from John Nolan at Middle Mountain Studios. The theme song was written and performed by Todd Marston. You can find the Wonder Dome wherever pods are casted. If you dig what we're doing here, please share widely, subscribe, and give us some love in the review boards. And if you feel called to support this humble offering to the world, while also making an even greater impact in the lives of others, consider becoming a monthly supporter. Not only will you help me keep the lights on and keep the show going for as long as I'm able, but 30% of all member contributions go directly in support of causes like the Black Lives Matter movement, the United Nations Refugee Agency, and the National Resources Defense Council. You can find out more at my website, mindfulcreative.coach, where you can also sign up for my newsletter, learn about my transformational coaching work, and get plugged into exclusive offers and community happenings. In the meantime, I'm wishing you a life of purpose, power, and presence. We need you now, more than ever. <laughs>